0: Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics, a brand new biography of Peggy Seeger, and the author I have on the phone with me now, Jean Friedman, and welcome to WLRN. Thank you. When did you first decide to write a biography uh, of of Peggy Seeger?
1: It was just about exactly nine years ago. Um, I was writing an article for the Journal of American Folklore, a book review, about um, a book that had just come out about Peggy's mother, Ruth Crawford Seeger. And um, I had some questions, and so I asked Peggy, you know, can we talk about this? And she said, fine, and so we were talking. And during the course of our conversation, she said, if you know of anyone who would like to write my biography, let me know. And without missing a beat, I said, I'll write your biography. And um, so that's how it started.
0: So you were familiar with Peggy?
1: Yes. Yes, I'd known Peggy since 1979 when I was a, an undergraduate, and I spent a year in London studying theater. And she and Ewan McCall had a folk club in Bloomsbury that I would go to regularly, and we became friendly, and um, so that's how I met her.
0: Peggy Seeger is of the famous Seeger family. Uh, Pete Seeger, of course. Uh, if Woody Guthrie is the father of American folk music, I, Pete Seeger's close, pretty close to Woody Guthrie. There. Yes. And uh, and Peggy Seeger is Pete's younger half sister. Uh, there, mm-hmm. There's Mike Seeger, and of course the mm-hmm. parents, who's Charles and, as you mentioned, Ruth Crawford Singer. Quite an amazing family. Tell me. <laughs> It all started with the, the, the parents. Tell me about Ruth Crawford Seeger and uh, Charles Seeger.
1: Okay. Well, Charles Seeger um, started out as a musicologist. Actually, he started out as a composer initially, but then he started to go deaf, and so he, he realized he wouldn't be able to... Um, be as much of a composer as he would like, so he became um, an academic, a musicologist. But he continued to teach composing, and one of his students was Ruth Crawford Seeger, as a very young, up-and-coming composer. Um, They met in the 30s, uh, fell in love, and they both continued to compose, but they had to make a living. So uh, Charles worked for many years for the federal government, doing various um, activities to do with folk music, starting out in the New Deal when he had a job going around the country collecting folk music, uh, trying to put it to use in various different capacities. He later worked for the Pan American Union, again working with music in different capacities, all the while still doing his research, still publishing, till when he... um, much later in his life, he was considered one of the great um, ethnomusicologists of his day. Uh, he lived into his 90s. Ruth Crawford Seeger sadly did not. She died in her early 50s. And she um, she stopped composing um, as a young mother because she had so many other demands on her time. She had four children. She was teaching piano uh, to, to make ends meet. And she also started doing a series of folk song anthologies for the Lomaxes. Uh, American Folk Songs for Children was the first one. It was very well received. And then she did Animal Folk Songs for Children and um, American Folk Songs for Christmas. And it's all uh, very well received, still, still used. And um, then later in life, she went back to composing. And again, was was very well received. She won a, a prize um, very shortly before the um, the end of her life. And so Peggy told me that music was always going on in their household: uh, classical music, folk music. They were both fascinated by folk music, and they started using folk music in their own compositions. Now, they hadn't started out that way. They'd started out as very avant-garde composers, but they found that that didn't have much resonance with many people. People would listen to their music and, and sort of not get it. But when they started adding folk music, it made it much more accessible. It made it much more um, listenable, if, you, if that's a word. Uh, to many people, and they liked um, the way that folk music fit in with classical music. So Peggy grew up hearing music all the time.
0: When you say folk music, we're talking now Mm -hmm. about the 1920s and 30s. What Mm -hmm. was folk music in the 20s and 30s? (laughs)
1: That's a great question. Um, In those days, it it would have been considered traditional music, music that had been passed down uh, by generation to generation. Largely in the country, though, it was being brought to the cities um, by immigrants, by by migrants, people moving from the country to the cities. So in those days, folk music would have been considered pretty much the same as traditional music.
0: Now, I have these old music books, uh, and they're filled with songs, hundreds of songs, and it seems like every one was either written or transcribed or arranged by either Alan Lomax or Ruth Crawford Seeger. Uh, so they, right. work, they work closely together,
1: obviously. Yes,
0: yes. And And what, what does it mean? So Alan went out and collected these songs in the field, and what did mm-hmm. Ruth do?
1: Ruth transcribed them, and in some cases arranged them. Um, Alan and his father, John, were pioneering collectors of folk music and they had hundreds as you say hundreds and hundreds of songs and to put them into songbooks they needed someone to transcribe them and Ruth was a very very good transcriptionist because she was a composer and she got the nuance um and because she was a composer she made these very creative arrangements to the songs so Alan would get the recordings take them to Ruth, Ruth would transcribe them, and in some cases also provide a a piano accompaniment, and then they would be sent off to the publisher and published.
0: I'm speaking to Jean Friedman, author of the new book Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics. We're talking about Peggy's mother right now, Ruth Crawford Singer. And in your book, it's very amusing reading how Alan Lomax and Ruth Crawford Singer used to argue about, I guess, the authenticity of this folk music, even though these songs themselves were a conglomerate of different cultures and different songs.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, Ruth was very much um, wedded to the sound. She was a composer, so sound was, was paramount. So she would listen to a recording, sometimes dozens of times. There's one thing that I mention in the book in which she and Alan had this argument about a word, which Ruth said sounded like like one thing, and Alan said, no, no, that, just, that doesn't sound right. From his experience being in the field, knowing what the song sounded like and what a person was likely to say, he said, that, that probably is not what that person said. And Ruth said, Yes, but if you listen to the tape, that is what that person said. So they were, they were both perfectionists, um, and so that sometimes led to clashes.
0: You also mentioned that Alan Lomax created a cult of authenticity,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: which changed the face of folk music.
1: And that's still being argued today, and I don't suppose it will ever really be resolved. What is a folk song? Who has the right to call this a folk song? Who has a right to sing it? Um, when does it change from being a folk song to being a pop song? If you add a guitar accompaniment to a song that had traditionally been sung unaccompanied, is that okay? If you add a piano accompaniment, which changes it even more. Is that okay? That's a question that is still being discussed and argued today and probably will continue to do so.
0: And your book also includes two probably the most staunchest authentic folk music defenders, which would be Alan Lomax, and uh, who eventually became Peggy Seeger's partner, Ewan McCall. They were such mm-hmm. traditionalists that they, they almost try to preserve the word folk music.
1: And yet, they were also popularizers. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting paradox that you're pointing out. They were very much dedicated to authenticity, and yet they didn't see folk music as a kind of museum piece that had to be preserved and not changed. They believed that it was okay to change it in ways as long as you stayed within the tradition. As long as the, you, that you didn't do anything that that violated the parameters of the tradition, so it's it's kind of a delicate balancing act there.
0: I mean, it, it all sounds pretty uh, technical right now, but back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, people were really passionate about this.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and and 60s as well. And there were, I mean, during the height of uh, what's often called the folk boom, the mid 20th century. Uh, time when folk music was really, really popular amongst many, many people, there were furious arguments about it, and people uh, you know, breaking away from others and, and not speaking to one another, or having uh, arguments within the pages of folk music magazines. So it was very passionate, very, very heartfelt.
0: You also, in the final chapter of your book, you have a great conclusion with the folk music revival, and You said there's there's almost a a racist tinge to it.
1: There was initially, now this is before people like Ewan and Peggy and even Peggy's parents got involved. If you go back to the 20s in this country, there was a uh, folk revival that was definitely racist. It was looking at Anglo-Saxon music, and I'm using that phrase because that is the phrase that they used, as the, the purest form of american folk music the best form of american folk music the form that should represent the country
0: ignoring all the and, other cultures
1: exactly ignoring or considering them inferior and this is exactly what peggy's parents were fighting during the the 20s and the 30s. They were saying this is exactly the wrong thing. Folk music is not something that you use as a club to hit people on the head with and say, our music is better than your music. The real beauty of it is that it is the music of, of everyone. Everyone has their own folk music. But if you look at the racist forms of folk music, as I say, it was in this country in the 20s, and if you look at racist uses of folk culture... No one did it more thoroughly than the Nazis who elevated German folklore, German folk culture as the world's greatest. And they did such a thoroughgoing job that folklore was considered a disgraced profession for decades after the end of the war.
0: This is all in background for the biography of Peggy Seeger, uh, who's the younger sister of Pete Seeger, whose brother, Mike Seeger, and they all more or less had different roles in the folk revival. Mike Mm -hmm. was a real instrumentalist, traditionalist. Uh, Pete Seeger, of course, introduced politics more or less to folk music. Mm -hmm. What was Peggy's role?
1: Peggy did a lot. In some ways, she was like Pete in that she included her politics in her music, which Mike never did. In some ways, she was like Mike, in which she believed in preserving traditional music. And she was also a very gifted, is, she's still alive, Um, she is also a very gifted instrumentalist. Uh, She played six instruments. She's also a songwriter, much more so than either um, Pete or Mike, though uh, none of her songs has achieved the, the kind of popularity that some of Pete's has. She's written a lot more songs. She's written loads and loads of songs. She has her
0: own songbook out. Now, this is kind of a loaded question because because we don't know Peggy because she moved to England. She spent most mm-hmm. of her life there and she hooked up with Ewan McCall who, who you do a pretty good job of describing him in the book of what a genius he was. Mm-hmm. How, how did she end up in England?
1: That is a fascinating story. Um, she Originally went to England at the request of Alan Lomax, who was putting together a folk group called the Ramblers. And he uh, was mainly composed of people who lived in the London area. And he needed a banjo player. So he contacted Peggy, and interesting thing is initially she said no, she says, i'm I'm going with friends to Scandinavia, I can't come to England. And he said, "Well, that's okay. you can you can take your time and and come a few weeks later. So she did. She arrived in England. Alan Lomax met her at the train station and said, you have an audition with the Ramblers this morning. She had been on the uh, boat from Denmark all night, was not exactly in the best frame of mind for an audition, but she went to it. And because she had been on the boat all night, Alan Lomax's girlfriend decided that she had to do a makeover on Peggy because she was wearing old jeans and old sneakers and her... You know you know how you look when you've been on the boat all night. And so Ellen Lomax's girlfriend dressed her up in these fashionable clothes, did her hair in a beehive, put lots of makeup on her. So she literally looked like a quite fashionable lady of the late 1950s. And then she went and played her banjo and sang The House Carpenter for The Ramblers. And one member of The Ramblers was Ewan McCall. And the way Ewan tells it is that he fell in love at first sight that he was just so captivated by Peggy, by her her talent, her drive, her passion. Um, But there were a couple of obstacles to the relationship. One is that he was 20 years older than she was. At this time, she was only 20. And the other was that he was married with a child. So they had an on-again, off-again relationship for several years. Then in the summer of 1957, they both went to the World Youth Festival in Moscow. They went separately. Um, Ewan went with his wife, and Peggy went with a group of other Americans. And at the end of the World Youth Festival, Peggy and the other Americans were invited to go to China. Now, the problem here was that an American passport did not allow you to go to China. And all the Americans got telegrams from the State Department saying that if you accept this invitation and go to China, you will be considered an agent of communist propaganda working against the best interests of the United States. And when you return home, you may lose your passport, you may be fined, you may even be imprisoned. Uh, Most people decided this was fairly serious and didn't go to China. But Peggy and about 40 others decided, oh, when are we going to get another opportunity like this? So they went ahead and went to China. When they left China, Peggy actually went back to to Moscow after leaving China. She had a problem. She knew that if she went back to the U.S., she would probably have her passport taken away, and then she wouldn't be able to see Ewan anymore. So she stayed in Europe until... It could be figured out what exactly was going on. In the meantime, she and Ewan had started working on some musical projects together. So she got a temporary visa to go to England and worked there for several months, working on the first radio ballad. And then the visa ran out, and she went to France and stayed with friends there. And at this point, she and Ewan were still deciding what it was that they that they wanted to do. Ewan being more insistent than Peggy that he wanted to spend his life with her. And then Peggy got pregnant. This sort of speeded up the process, that they needed to find some way to get Peggy into England and some legal way that she could stay there. Well, the best way to do that would be for her to marry a British subject. But Ewan was still married. He had not yet um, gotten a divorce. So they had a friend, um, a Scottish folk singer named Alex Campbell, who said, oh, I'll marry you. It seems to be an extraordinary display of friendship. So when Peggy was about six months pregnant, they were married in Paris. She was then able to go to England because she was legally married to a British subject. She was able to get a British passport and to legally stay in Britain. And somewhat later, she and Alex had a quiet little divorce. And then she stayed in in England until um, till Ewan died, and for several years after. And then she came back to the States for a while, and now she's back in England.
0: Did she ever marry
1: Ewan? She did, yes. They did actually get married. Though neither were particularly interested in getting married. Peggy said what was important was being together, not the actual legal status. But at, at one point, their accountant said, you you would do well to get married. you get all these tax breaks. And so at that point, they decided to get married.
0: There's so much more I want to talk about, but let's take a little song break since we're talking about marriage. Uh, it wasn't a conventional marriage, and... and and Peggy doesn't write conventional songs. Tell me a little bit about a- Darling Annie.
1: Darling Annie is a love song. It's a, a two-part song. You and Peggy used to sing it together, in which the man is actually presented as the more conventional romantic figure. He is saying, please marry me for all these reasons. For example, I will, um, I'll provide a home for you. And she says, well, we can get a home without being married. And so it's a It's a song in which the man is trying to convince the woman to marry him, which is a fairly conventional subject for folk songs, but it has um, an unconventional response from the woman.
0: Here's Ewan McCall with Peggy Seeger, Darling Annie.
2: If you'll marry me i'll give you everything i have you won't ever need to earn a penny i will be your man and the ring upon your hand will tell the world that you're my darling annie
3: thank you love i'll be glad to add your wages onto mine i can work and keep myself sandy you can
2: For it's love, love will hold us, love is everything. Who could dream of anything that's better? Not the vow, not the string, not the golden wedding ring. Just you, love you and me together. If you'll marry me, I will give to you my name. It will shield you from idle talk and envy. For when you play the game You're secure from any blame Not ashamed to be my darling honey
3: Thank you, love
2: But it's love, love will hold us, love is everything. Who could dream of anything that's better? Not the vow, not the string, not the golden wedding ring. Just you, love you and me together. If you'll marry me, we'll get a house and settle down. A place to call our own, so neat and canny. With a family and a home love you'll never feel alone Left on the shelf a spinster darling Annie
3: Dearest love we could surely find a place to call our own All we need is influence and money But I don't need a ring or a house or anything To become a mother or a granny
2: For it's love, love will hold us, love is everything Who could dream of anything that's better? Not the bow, not the string, not the golden wedding ring Just you, love you and me together If you marry me, I will be faithful unto death You will have all my love and my attention we will care, we will share life in sickness and in health And when I die, you can draw the widow's pension
3: I will live with you and I'll be faithful unto death We will share all the burdens we must carry We'll always be free, maybe you and you for me But when we're all love, maybe we should marry for it's love, love will
2: hold us, love is everything. Who could dream of anything that's better? Not the vow, not the string, not the golden wedding ring. Just you, love you and me together.
0: Darling Annie, Peggy Seeger, you and McCall, I have on the phone with me Jean Friedman. Her new book is called Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics. It seems interesting to me that one of the reasons Peggy left the United States because it was hard playing music in the shadow of her famous older brother, Pete Seeger, Mm. yet here she is in England in the shadow of Ewan McCall.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's one of the reasons she left England after Ewan died, is that they had been such a unit. People barely said their names apart, you know, Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall. It was almost like one word. Um, and after Ewan died, it was very difficult to sing there as a solo act. She had one horrible person who referred to her as a remnant of a dead duo. Um, so she, at that moment, decided to come back to the States for a while and, and make her living here. And she did that for for 20 years.
0: I find it interesting that the times that she was living in, uh, as a partner of Ewan McCall, it was still a very sexist time, and Peggy Mm -hmm. Seeger didn't get a lot of credit for the music that she made with Ewan.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it was the kind of, in many ways, the kind of almost unrecognized sexism, sexism that was so ingrained it seemed normal. Um, For example, when... She and Ewan and Charles Parker did these series of radio documentaries called radio ballads, and it was very common for Ewan and Charles to be considered the authors and Peggy to be considered the helper. Um, when one of the one of the uh, radio ballads won a very prestigious prize, the Prix d'Italia, and they um, Ewan and Charles went off to Italy to to receive the prize, Peggy didn't go. So yes, it was a time when it was sort of considered that the man was in charge. When Peggy and Ewan set up a company it was called Ewan McCall Limited. It wasn't called Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger Limited.
0: Well well what, what did she do? When when you say she arranged the music, what does that entail?
1: For the radio ballads she did a huge amount. She um she provided arrangements to the songs, she helped write the songs. She provided lots of musical interludes and sound effects. She directed the other musicians. She played. She sang. In many of the radio ballads, she did interviews along with Charles and Ewan, interviewing the people that they were writing songs about. So she did a tremendous amount.
0: Let me play another song. Tell me about the Ballad of Spring Hill.
1: The Ballad of Spring Hill was one of Peggy's first songs that really got attention, written in the late 1950s about a an underground earthquake that happened near the town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. And there was a mine, there were over 100 miners that were trapped in this mine after the earthquake. Many of them died, uh, the others were all rescued in a matter of days. But what made it so famous was that it was one of the first of these disasters to be televised. So people throughout the world heard about it. Peggy heard about it when she was still living in France. And so she wrote this song in ballad style, this very uh, traditional style that works very well for telling stories. And so she she wrote the Ballad of Spring Hill, still being sung in Nova Scotia.
0: Here's the Ballad of Spring Hill.
4: In the town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia Down in the dark of the Cumberland Mine There's blood and the coal and the miners lie In the roads that never saw sun or sky Roads that never saw sun or sky In the town of Spring Hill you don't sleep easy, often the earth will tremble and roll. When the earth is restless, miners die, bone and blood is the price of coal, bone and blood is the price of coal. town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. Late in the year of 58, day still comes and the sun still shines, but it's dark as the grave in the Cumberland mine. Dark as the grave in the Cumberland mine. The gold faced miners, miners work in rattle of the belts and the cutter's blade. Rumble of rock, and the walls close round the living and the dead men two miles down. Living and the dead men two miles down. Twelve men lay to miles from the pit shaft twelve men lay in the dark and sang long hot days in a minus two it was three feet high and a hundred long three feet high and a hundred long three days passed and the lamps gave out and Caleb rushed and he up and said, There's no more water, nor light, nor bread, so we'll live on songs and hope instead. Live on songs and hope instead. Listen for the shouts of the bare-faced miners Listen through the rubble for a rescue team Six hundred feet of coal and slag Hope imprisoned in a three-foot sea Hope imprisoned in a three-foot sea Days passed and some were rescued Leaving the dead too
0: Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger, The Ballad of Spring Hill. I have on the phone with me Gene Friedman, author of the new book, Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics. Ewan McCall, uh, that song was done in the traditional style, and that was, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, Ewan's influence. He was, he, was a, he was a big traditionalist. and He was, mm-hmm. he was almost, to a, a, almost to a fault. He didn't like any of the new music. He didn't like the popular Lonnie Donegan's skiffle music. He didn't like any of that stuff.
1: Well, that's not quite right. He liked a lot of it. He didn't like a lot of it. He had very strict standards, um, and he actually encouraged people to write new songs, but he was very clear that he wanted these new songs to be written within the parameters of the older tradition. It was not that he was opposed to writing new songs, because he wrote loads and loads and loads of new songs himself, and he and Peggy had this group of young musicians that they mentored called the Critics Group. But what he didn't like was people who took the songs and played them in ways that he felt violated the tradition, that was doing violence to the tradition. And skiffle is an interesting example because in many ways it's what sort of got people interested in Britain in folk music in the first place. So I think he was sort of on the fence about Skiffle. No, not really very approving. But on the other hand, it did get people interested in the music that he cared about.
0: When was the British folk revival?
1: About the same time as the American in the in the late fifties and in the, and through the sixties. It it started out being very much influenced by the American folk revival, which was so popular, and people were getting records and recordings, and in fact, Skiffle was, was very much a, um, almost an imitation of American folk music, in particular, Woody Guthrie and Leadbelly. And then people started saying, and Ewan was one of the loudest voices saying this, you know, why are we imitating the Americans? We have loads of folk music of our own. And Ewan always encouraged people to look to their own traditions, if you're English, look at, at English folk music. If you're Scottish, look at Scottish folk music. And if you're Irish, look at Irish folk music. And so people in, in, in the British Isles started looking towards their own traditions at this point as well.
0: Political music during the British folk revival seemed to be a lot more targeted than uh, any political music in, in America. I, I guess that was because of the, the communist scare here?
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's um, American folk music started to be targeted as well during the civil rights movement, uh, during the Vietnam War. But yes, initially in America, if you look at the at the fifties in particular, a lot of the folk revival here was very focused on traditional music, on re- reviving old songs, playing them again, and the the Red Scare was was definitely part of it. There were, Pete sometimes couldn't get gigs or had gigs canceled because people said, don't you know this, this man, Pete Seeger, he's a communist and found it difficult for several years to get gigs in places other than schools and summer camps and other places like that. And interestingly enough, his biographer, David Dunaway, makes a very good point that the fact that he was singing to all these young people meant that there's a whole generation of American young people who learned folk music from Pete. And by the time they were in college and were creating their own music, they started to be a lot more political. So it was kind of an interesting evolution there.
0: Getting back to Peggy's life, it seems to me that she sang a lot of songs about women's right and feminism, yet it was difficult for Ewan to put that into practice.
1: Yeah, that is um, that is an interesting point. And to Ewan's very great credit, he recognized this, and he talks about this in his autobiography. Peggy did not really get involved in the women's movement until the 70s, during what we call the second wave of feminism. And the way she wrote what's usually considered her most famous song, I'm Going to Be an Engineer, is because they were doing a theater piece called The Festival of Fools. This is what they did. uh, Ewan and Peggy and the Critics Group did this for several years. They did a sort of a review at the end of the year, taking different stories from newspapers throughout the year, writing songs and sketches and things like that about them. And uh, Ewan did most of the, the writing of the sketches. Peggy did a lot of the writing of the songs. She did the musical direction. So in 1971... Ewan said, I think we should have a women's song. Peggy, write a women's song. And Peggy was sort of like, oh, I don't have enough to do. I'm a musical director. I'm doing all this organizing and playing. But she did. She wrote, I'm going to be an engineer, which was one of the very first sort of feminist anthems. And it just caught on like wildfire. And lots and lots of people started singing it. And then she started getting invited to uh, women's events and conferences and being asked for more women's songs, and she said she didn't have any. So she started writing them, and she started looking at things that, um, that were unfair and yet unquestioned. Inequality between men and women, that was almost taken for granted. She wrote songs about housework and how it wasn't considered even work, and how it was considered the woman's job, no matter if the woman worked outside the home or not.
0: Let me play a song. I have played, I'm going to be an engineer in the past, and it was interesting reading in your book how many women became engineers because of that song. (laughs) Uh, But let me play another one. Lady, what do you do all day?
2: Lady, what do you do all day? Lady, how do you spend your time? Lady. Got no time to be
5: standing here gossiping. Got no time to be answering. Beds need making, the dishes need washing. Inventing me dusting and polishing. Scrubbing and sweeping and sewing and cleaning and cooking and ironing. Are you listening? I'm a production line all by myself. Only my wages are missing. Three kids of eight and seven and two, leisure is just a mythology. When it's over my head, I can't go to bed, It's temper or else psychology. Mary's bedwetting and Tommy is jealous A baby, his yelling is driving me crazy. A nurse and a nanny until I'm a granny, but why is it nobody pays me? I care for a lovely old mother-in-law, she's 87 and cranky husband's home with the feverish cold run for the tea and the hankies the hot water bottle, the telly, the paper and now the kids have it, it must be contagious and now I'm the family medical staff but where the hell are me wages? Wives and mothers all took to their heels You'd soon be needing an army And paying them all a union wages I bet it would drive you barmy All eyes and ears, all hands and feet My sign is Germany. should've been two of me I do the work of a dozen a day But where are the wages due to me? With wages so low price is so high, budgeting must be meticulous. The hours I spend in looking for bargains and cooking them is really ridiculous. And though my man's doing all that he can, what he brings home isn't making his meat. And I'll have to go out for a wage myself if the family's going to keep eating. Hi, up in the morning before all the family. Get the grub on the table. Beds need making, the dishes need washing. Is everything done on the double? Drop the kids off at the school and run from me bus. Don't you think it's outrageous? I'd more than enough with me. Labour of love, now I'm doing another for wages. My boss is as good as a boss can be, but the office is just like a nursery. Smoothing his life, soothing his trouble. Remembering his anniversary. Reminded, hurrying, scurrying, worrying into the frying pan out of the cage. And his home from home, wherever I roam. But at least I'm getting my wages. On my way home, I shop for the dinner and then have a tidy around Billy comes in sits down with the papers as girl as you ever sit down men of the world would you think it was strange think it was right think it was funny to slog every night at a job for free after sloggin all day for your money so give me my wages give me my due i'm opting out of the system give me bonuses overtime sick leave and paid holidays and a pension then i can strike Work to rule or go slow or object to conditions and hours for wages would give me the power to have a say in a world where a person who happens to be female is supposed to be happy to spend all her time as a baby minder, sock minder, bacon fryer, destroyer, floor sweeper, light sleeper, brow smoother, mend the hoover. Nappy folder, hand holder, onion chopper, mess mopper, button sewer, to and thrower, tidy upper. What's for supper? Money stretcher, run and fetcher, cake baker, back baker, early waker, bed maker, breakfast maker, lunch maker, tea maker, sandwich maker. Lady,
2: what do you do all day? Lady, it's your only life. When they ask you,
5: what do you say? Oh, I don't work. I'm nothing but a housewife. <laughs>
0: Lady, what do you do all day? That's Peggy Seeger with you and McCall. Peggy Seeger has a new biography out called "Peggy Seeger: A Life of Music, Love, Politics," and I have the author on the phone with me, Jean Friedman. The Festival of Fools—that that sounds fascinating. What is that?
1: Well, it was a—it was taken from a, a medieval idea. Actually, there was in, during the Middle Ages in Europe there was a. a, a called the Festival of Fools, which was and generally done um, around midwinter, when people uh, who were on the lower rungs of the social hierarchy made fun of people who were on the upper rungs of the social hierarchy. So Peggy and Ewan thought this was a great idea. And in the mid-60s, when it started, they were uh, working with a group of young musicians that they were mentoring called the Critics Group. And so they said, we'd like to do this as sort of a uh, a musical review at the end of the year. And they would go through newspapers and look for articles that seemed interesting, amusing, horrifying, dramatic. And they would write songs about them. They would write skits about them. Then they would put this together as a theater piece and perform it um, at the end of the year. And they did this uh, until 1972.
0: Ewan McCall, he had a theater background. Yes. And that influenced his songwriting quite a bit.
1: Absolutely, yes. Ewan started out as a theater person. He didn't really consider himself a musician until he met Alan Lomax and started working with Peggy, but he started out with theater in the 30s in what in those days were called agitprop, agitational propaganda, uh, theater pieces, street theater. He and his first wife, Joan Littlewood, founded the Theater Workshop, which lasted for decades, doing politically conscious theater. So he was very definitely a theater person, and he had been the the director of Theater Workshop. So it was sort of a natural expression for him to direct the Festival of Fools. But you're right, it also affected his songwriting. You can see definite characters in many of Ewan's songs, definite points of view. And he had a very dramatic way of singing. To put forth the
0: dramatic potential of the song. One of the Yulon's most famous song, most popular song, is a song I learned from your book that he never sang. He wrote it mm-hmm. uh, for a theater piece that Peggy was doing in this country, and and it was made famous by Clint Eastwood. Think. <laughs> Tell me about the first the first time I saw you. First
1: time ever I saw your face. First time
0: I ever saw your face.
1: That's a good story. I, this was during the period when, the sort of on-again, off-again period that Peggy and Ewan had at the beginning of their relationship in the 50s, and Peggy had gone back to the States and was staying with her, her father in California, and she had a concert coming up, and um, Ewan and Peggy were talking on the phone which to us nowadays doesn't sound remarkable that someone in California would be talking to someone in England on the phone but in those days it was a very unusual event. Those phone calls were incredibly expensive so they were generally very short and so Peggy said to Ewan, I have this gig coming up and they want a short new love song and I can't think of one. Do you have one? And the story goes that Ewan wrote it on the spot. He wrote it while he was on the phone with Peggy, First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. And if you look at the song, it has a great deal in common with traditional English folk song. The repetition, the first three lines are practically the same with minor changes. The lines are repeated. There are different catchphrases that go throughout the song. So you can see Ewan working almost like a traditional songwriter, taking these bits and pieces of the tradition and creating the song within a matter of minutes. First time ever I saw your face. Peggy sang it. She continued to sing it. But um, as you say, it really became famous when Roberta Flack recorded it in the early 70s. And she won a Grammy for it. Uh, Ewan won a Grammy for it. And it really became well-known when Clint Eastwood used the Roberta Flack recording in his movie, Play Misty, for me. And then everybody knew it.
0: And how much did that change Peggy and Ewan?
1: It changed them in a way that all of a sudden they had plenty of money. They had been struggling for years. And with a huge hit like that, they could afford a lot of things they hadn't been able to afford before. Like they could afford to say no to gigs if they didn't want to you know, travel that far or if they had too many things on their schedule. So they could afford to take only the gigs they really wanted. And perhaps most importantly, they could afford to have another child. And shortly thereafter, their daughter was born.
0: Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics. I have the author on the phone with me. Another fascinating part of your book was... Probably one of the saddest. Was it the critics' group that revolted? Yes. That was a real setback for the the Seeger-McCall family.
1: Yes, it was a very difficult thing. The critics' group was this group of young folk singers. They they wanted to learn more about uh, performance practice, about writing songs, so Ewan and Peggy sort of took them under their wing and they would meet weekly at Ewan and Peggy's house And they they did all sorts of projects together in addition to the Festival of Fools, this this theater piece that they did every year. They also did concerts. They made albums. They traveled. Some of them went with Ewan and Peggy to Italy. Some of them went with Ewan and Peggy to Cuba. And so they were a very tight-knit group for several years. And then some of the members of the critics' group started to feel that Ewan and Peggy were being too autocratic, um, particularly Ewan, and they started to, to chase at the at the boundaries. And it ended rather acrimoniously. One night after the last run of the Festival of Fools, a, a group of the critics group, a, a sort of breakaway group, took a lot of the equipment that they had been using, sound equipment, etc., and said, we're going off to form our own, group, we no longer want to be part of, of your organization, goodbye. And it was, it was very, very hurtful, particularly to Ewan, uh, because this was his last theater group that he had had a lot of hopes for and treated almost as if they were his children. And, well, they didn't want to be treated like children. They were, they were not children. They were young adults. So this was a wound for quite a long time. And Ewan never talked to some of these people again. He never made up with them. Peggy eventually did. Peggy, After Ewan's death, Peggy reached out to a number of people and said um, it would be nice to be in touch again. And not going over what had happened, not revisiting that, but just... It would be nice to be in touch again. Well, that happened and, uh, quite
0: a few years ago, right?
1: Yes, this was a, the breakup was in the early seventies.
0: I see. And Peggy, since Ewan's death, her career has she been recognized for what she has what she had done?
1: I think so. I think much more now that she is a solo act and she's not in anybody's shadow. She has gotten quite a number of awards, both in this country and in England. And she's also done a lot of songwriting. Her songwriting efforts really redoubled um, in the years since Ewan's death, not because Ewan prevented her from, from writing songs. He didn't. He was always very encouraging. But because there were always so many other things to be done when she was with Ewan. But she has now written many, many songs, and I think she is being recognized more and more as the as the great artist she really is.
0: You worked with Peggy on this biography. Were there mm-hmm. stories or incidents that she would prefer that you didn't write about?
1: Yes. There were several times when she told me things and said, But please don't write about that. So, so you, of course I did.
0: You didn't, oh no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you have to you have to keep faith with the people that you're working with. That's that's only ethical.
0: Well what surprised you the most about your research?
1: One thing that surprised me the most was just the sheer amount of work that she had done. When I first got to working with her, I knew about some of her music, but I didn't know about the Festival of Fools. I didn't know about the critics group. I didn't know about just the huge, huge amount of work that she had done. It's hard to believe that one person could have done so much. Uh, Another thing was just her complete fearlessness in walking into situations that other people would have avoided, like going to China, even though her country said this is forbidden, or riding on a scooter from Chicago to New York, which she did after she had a gig at the Gate of Horn, or going to live with Yuan even though he was still married to someone else, just her absolute fearlessness in doing what she thought was the right thing to do. And that, that's very much part of Peggy's character. She does what she thinks is right, and if there are negative consequences, that's the price that she feels is worth it to pay for following her own moral compass.
0: Why do you think she's settled in, in uh, Oxford now?
1: Well, for one thing, the archives, the Ewan McCall Peggy Seeger archives, are in Oxford at, at Ruskin College, it's close to London. Her three children live in the London area. It's a wonderful small town. It has so many things to do, and yet it's not the rat race of London, where she lived for so many years. I think there are a lot of reasons why why Oxford was her choice.
0: It's so interesting that here you have an American seeped in the American traditional having such an influence on the British folk revival.
1: Yes, that is a very interesting factor. And the the British folk revival, as I I mentioned earlier, was very influenced by the American folk revival, which came first. And in Britain, a lot of people started out imitating Americans and then sort of did an abrupt about-face. It's like, hey, we don't need to imitate Americans. We have a folk culture of our own. And many people very deliberately then started building a, a British folk revival that was... Um, you know, very distinctly different from the American folk revival. Peggy continued singing American songs because she said, this is my culture, this is where I come from, what I was brought up with, and what I can do the best. But yes, it is interesting that, that Americans, and not just Peggy, but also Alan Lomax, had such an influence on the British folk revival.
0: Jean Friedman, her book is Peggy Seeger, A Life of Music, Love, and Politics. I'm going to play one more song, and thank you so much for such an enjoyable read and an interesting biography. Tell me about Thoughts of Time.
1: Thoughts of Time is a song that Peggy wrote when Ewan started to become ill in the 70s. And it's a song that um, is kind of a summing up of their life together with the recognition that it's not over, but that the ending is on the Horizon. It's one of my favorite songs of hers. It's poignant. It's beautiful. It has, a, it has a beautiful melody. And it sort of is her statement about her life with Ewan.
0: Jean, thank you so much for taking time to talking to us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: And per-